From a distance, there is harmony, and it echoes through the land. It is the voice of hope. It is the voice of peace. It is the voice of every man, sings Bette Midler. We here at Solutions of Violence, as well as our guest today, Elizabeth Hume, also carry a torch for peace and harmony. Hi, folks. Welcome to Solutions of Violence. You're listening to WFMP 106.5 FM. I'm Jim Johnson, here with Jamie McMillan. We are your hosts for Solutions of Balance, program of and sponsored by WFMP Radio. Solutions of Balance as part of WFMP's public affairs educational program. The views expressed are those of our guests and not the station. If you would like to share your views, you can do this by emailing us at solutionsofbalance18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Our guest today is acting president and CEO at the Alliance for Peace Building, mediator and expert in policy, advocacy, and overseeing complex peace building programs, Elizabeth Hume. Welcome, Elizabeth Hume, to Solutions to Balance. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Elizabeth, it's our pleasure to have you join us. We are delighted you're here. Share with us your experience in conflict resolution and uh, representing the Alliance for Peace Building. Elizabeth Hume is the acting president and CEO at Alliance for Peace Building. She is a conflict expert in policy and advocacy and overseeing complex peace building programs in Asia, Eastern Europe, and Africa. She worked for the International Rescue Committee in Pakistan. In 2004, she served in leadership positions and helped establish the Office of Conflict Management and Mitigation at United States Agency for International Development. That's the U.S. AIB. She is experienced in mediation, countering violent extremism, international conflict analysis, and peace building in conflict-affected countries. Hume holds a BA from Boston College, a Doctor of Jurisprudence from Vermont Law School, and an MA in Negotiation, Conflict, Resolution, and Peace Building from California State University. Elizabeth Hume has extensive experience working for U.S. government, the not for profit sector, non government, and international organizations. With our guest, Elizabeth Hume, we welcome you to Solutions to Violence. Now that we've shared some of your professional history and accomplishments with our listeners, give us an idea of your early life experiences and Explain how those experiences influenced your professional path. So thank you so much. And feel free, please call me Liz. But thank you so much. That This is a really good question that nobody has ever asked me before. And I think it is a really critical question to understand why people get into this field. And I thought about it a lot when I saw it. And I went back to really, I mean, to be very personal, going back to my early years, I grew up in a household that was had significant conflict in it. There was lots of fighting. It was, you know, my parents fought and eventually they got divorced. And I remember thinking, even as a little kid, this isn't normal. You know, it doesn't have to be this way. And I got, you know, as a young kid growing, you know, going into high school, into college, I was fascinated by conflict and trying to understand what it was, why it happened, interpersonal conflict, but also global conflict. I was, you know, I was always reading a book about wars and why they started and how they ended. I, you know, I had never really thought about it in that way, why I was so fascinated and went back through it, you know, going back to a, as a little kid, but that's really what drew me to this. And then when I was in law school, I 
was fascinated in law about, it was so adversarial. It was all about winning, destroying the other person. I knew that, you know, being a litigator or working in the legal field in that way was not what I wanted to do. It, it wasn't going to make me happy. I also at Boston College studied international history and, and you know, really focused again on conflicts and peace and wanted to merge the two. I'm looking at international affairs and law and how do you help societies piece back to, you know, piece themselves back together after a major conflict. Uh, and then, so, you know, I was in Bosnia, I was in Kosovo, I was in Afghanistan and I got there right after each of these conflicts. And I remember thinking in Afghanistan, this is crazy. Like why, why are we showing up after the conflict? We know once there has been a violent conflict, a country is more likely to go back to conflict within 10 years. Um, you see the incredible devastation. Uh, you know, you have to really, you know, think about what this means. People are killed. Development, you know, we, we say war is development in reverse. Um, the Syrian conflict years ago, the UN put out a report saying it had set Syria back 20 years in development. And this was just during the first couple of years in the war. It is devastating. And also what happens is once you have a violent conflict, you know, people are killed. There's, you know, most likely there's going to be atrocities. There's going to be human rights violations. It makes it that much harder to reconcile afterwards. And these grudges, you know, what happens runs deep. And we now know this in our neuroscience that, you know, it's not like a conflict happens and it stops and then you get over it and you move on. It doesn't work that way. And, you know, if you think about it, even in your own interactions, your personal interactions, you hold grudges. Now think about you hold a grudge or, you know, you can't reconcile with somebody. And what we ask of people, so for example, in Srebrenica, there was just an anniversary of the Srebrenica massacre in Bosnia. You know, we ask people to move back, to live next door to their neighbors who wiped out their families. This reconciliation that we ask for, I mean, just even look at it in the United States, how hard it is for a Democrat to sit down with a Republican and vice versa now. So prevention is what, you know, we need to be focusing in on conflict prevention. So that's really my story and how I got here. Okay. So you've been acting CEO of Alliance for Peace Building for six years. Alliance mm -hmm. for Peace Building is a 501c3 mm -hmm. non-for-profit, non-partisan network of over 150 plus organizations. These organizations are working in 181 countries to end mm -hmm. conflict, reduce violence, and build sustainable peace. Would you briefly explain the mission of Alliance for Peace? And also... Tell us a little bit about the history. Sure. So I'll start with the history and just talk a little bit about that. You know, the, the peace building field is, is a relatively new field. The conflict prevention field is, an, you know, when, and when we say a relatively new field, I mean, you're talking about 30 years. That's still pretty relatively new or 20 years. So what happened was after, especially after the fall of the wall and the you know, Soviet the Soviet Union, there were, you know, I think people were really excited that, you know, we were going to be, you know, reckoning or coming into this new age of peace. And it had the opposite effect. You saw Bosnia, what happened in Bosnia, there was a lot of fear of a lot of the former Soviet Union states moving into conflict. Rwanda happened, you know, there was a lot happening <laughs> throughout Africa in, you know, in Central America. And 
it really shook up the development field that they had to think about, we have to be doing things differently. We have to be looking at conflict prevention. We can't just be, you know, coming to these conflicts after the fact and looking at early warning. So a field started developing and people started doing work in this sector, but it wasn't very well coordinated. You know, so you had a lot of people, you know, doing a lot of different programs, but without a lot of coordination. And around, you know, that time in the early 2000s, late 1990s, you also saw governments, so the U.S. government, for example, or in the U.N., standing up these peace-building offices or conflict prevention offices. And that's what happened at USAID. They set up the Office of Conflict Management and Mitigation, um, which I helped establish. But at the same time, on the civil society side, people, individuals, and organizations that were doing this work said, we need to come together and we need to understand best practices, what's working, what's not working, how do we advocate for this field? And that's essentially what how the Alliance for Peace Building came together. It was a group of people like Rob Rosigliano, who is, you know, a true expert in this field, got together and people started collaborating. I mean, that, that's really just how it started. And it grew and grew and grew. And now we're 150 members working in 181 countries. But that's really, you know, the start of it, of how it grew. And it grew out of this sense that we needed one organization or one or, you know, one organization in the United States to, to be able to address problems that were too big for any one organization. If one organization is having this challenge, another organization is. So it's, it's really meant to be able to advocate on the issues of how to grow the field, how to build the field, how to make the field stronger, how to identify, you know, those best practices, the best evidence that we have that, you know, what works to prevent a conflict, what doesn't. And we have one of the uh, largest conferences every year that we'll be having this year in January that, you know, brings, you know, brings people together from all over the world to discuss these really critical issues with policymakers, local practitioners, you know, U.S. government implementers, U.K. implementers, academics, researchers. So we invite everyone to come. So Elizabeth Hume, what are some of the prominent achievements of the Alliance for Peace? What is currently in the works? What's your role? Sure. So unfortunately, you know, conflict is a growing business right now, and that's incredibly unfortunate, but the world is experiencing a 30-year high in violent conflict and violence. And violent conflict is responsible for forced displacement of more than 80 million people. And that's more than during World War II, which is the highest numbers we've seen of refugees and displaced people. 235 million people need humanitarian assistance and protection, about one in 33 people globally. We know that COVID is stabilization in reverse. Climate change is a threat multiplier. It's a compounding force um, for countries that are fragile and, and conflict affected. We're seeing genocide issues on the rise. And even democracies, significant backsliding in democracies, you know, even, you know, we're seeing traditional Western democracies that, um, you know, we once thought were stable um, as being flawed, again, even here in the United States. So, you know, what aren't we working on is really the issue right now. But some of our really big achievements really focus on, uh, we worked in coordination and partnership with our um, member Mercy Corps, uh, which is a large international aid agency that works on one of their 
they, they do a lot of humanitarian assistance, but they're a credible leader in the conflict field. We worked with them to get a law passed, the Global Fragility Act. And this was at the end of 2019. It was a bipartisan, you know, that's crazy, right? We got a bipartisan bill in one of the most uh, polarized Congress through to put conflict prevention and peace building in the front of development and do it differently. Focus in on that, on upstream conflict prevention, and really look at in some priority countries and regions, how do we do it differently? What are we doing that isn't working? So that's that's a perfect example of our work. We're also working right now with Congress to look at material support laws. Um, right now, and you know, it's understandable, it was 9-11, and people were, the attacks on the World Trade Center a lot of laws went into place that have been really restrictive, that have tied our hands behind our back, that we haven't been able to do the conflict prevention work that we need overseas to prevent violent extremism. So we're working on those laws. We really want to hold the government accountable for you know the work that they're doing. Right now, um, President Biden has said he wants to put human rights and democracy at the center of our foreign policy. We also believe conflict prevention should be in there. But if you say that, then we have to do it. So I recently wrote an article on Uganda that showed you know, we have, you know, the government in Uganda under President Museveni, we provide a significant amount of budget support. But yet one of the biggest, you know, the elections that just happened there were far from fair. There is a lot of human rights abuses. So we need to take a look at how we're doing our work differently. So those are, those are some of the examples that we're working on. We're also really looking at research and evidence-based reports like what are we doing right? What's working? What's not working um, in conflict prevention? And really taking a look at an evidence-based approach. So those are some of, you know, some of I think our our greatest successes or the work that we're doing on we're doing right now. Yeah, you were chief legal counsel for the Organization of Security and Cooperation in Bosnia, Herzegovina, and Kosovo. You were responsible for developing the legal framework and policies in support of the implementation of the Dayton Peace Accords that we talked about earlier, and the UN Resolution 1244. Dayton Accords, Paris Protocol, and Dayton Paris Agreement is a peace agreement reached in November 1995 and formally signed in, in Paris in December. These accords put an end to the long Bosnian War, one of the armed conflicts in the former Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. Elizabeth Hume, you you participated in these peace accords, but you participated as part of, of uh, an NGO, non-government organization. Is that correct? You were not a member of the government negotiating team. Is that correct? Uh, no, actually, I was seconded by the State Department, the U.S. Department of State, to the Organization for Security and Cooperation for Europe. And they were, the OSCE was developed after the fall of the Soviet Union. And it's a member state organizations made up countries in Europe and the US and Canada. And it was meant to address the issues in these states that were part of the former Soviet Union. Uh, and the reason why it was put together, I think, is that the UN had really been looked at as a humanitarian organization or a peacekeeping mission in areas like Asia and Africa. And the OSCE or these countries felt like we needed different technical expertise in this region. 
And coupled with the fact, especially in Bosnia, the UN, and in no fault of their own, had been sent there, they'd sent peacekeepers in time of war. And there were, all, the UN, I was actually at a film festival shortly after the war ended in Sarajevo. And when they showed a picture of Butrus Butrus Ghali, who had been the secretary general of the UN at the time in this film, he was booed. So the OSCE was an organization set up specifically for this. And I was seconded by the State Department and the OSCE in Bosnia. Its headquarters were in Vienna and the, um, the mission in Bosnia, headquartered in Sarajevo, was headed by a U.S a former U.S. ambassador. Um, so, so yeah, so I have been asked this question a lot. What was the role there? What did we do? What did the, did the peace accords, did the Dayton peace accords or the general framework agreement for peace, what did it, you know, what did it do in Bosnia? And I've given this answer and I gave this answer even when I was there. It stopped the violent conflict. That's what it did. And, you know, the conflict there was, horrendous in terms of genocide, war crimes, loss of life, destruction. And so that's what it did. And that's a good thing. However, it did not bring peace to this region in Bosnia. In fact, today it is, you know, I, I look back, there was an anniversary just a couple of years ago, a 20 year anniversary of the Dayton Peace Accords. And I thought, wow, 20 years later, and, you know, Bosnia is incredibly fragile. And there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, one is to get the Dayton Peace Accord signed and Ambassador Holbrook brought the parties to an airport hangar in Dayton, Ohio, and essentially wouldn't let them leave until they signed this agreement. Richard Holbrook. Yeah, it is uh, incredibly complex. The key to it was getting people to return to where they came from. There was incredible amount of displacement because of the fact, especially let's say in the Republic of Srpska area of Bosnia, you know, there was ethnic cleansing. Um, so the key to it was getting people to move back, but it's very hard to get people to move back to places where their families were wiped out, where you're living with people who ethnically cleansed your family. So that was one of the keys to uh, the Dayton Peace Accord that I don't think has ever really fully been realized, coupled with the fact there's so much government. And if, um, you know, there's three groups there, there's the Croats, the Serbs, and the Bosniaks. And if any one of them wants to say no to something, um, even though it's voted on, they can, it's a, it's kind of like a cultural you know, trump card they can throw down and say, nope, we're not going to do this. So there's just an incredible amount of bureaucracy. Um, you know, you've you've stitched this country back together again um, with ethnic groups that have a history of intense fighting, um, you know, that's going back hundreds of years. Um, and it's, it's, again, it's one of the things I alluded to earlier. We now know that conflict gets into people's DNA. It's not as, you know, easy to get beyond it. So I'm not, I'm not a hundred, I mean, I'm not convinced that Bosnia is going to you know, be able to stay together in a functioning, healthy way to get out of its fragility. And there's been a lot of um, close calls. You know, part of the key is that it has to become a member of, you know, the EU and be brought more into the European Union. I'm, I'm not sure that's going to happen. But 
So, you know, it stopped to make it make a long story short, it stopped the violent conflict. It has not built peace. So Elizabeth Hume, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's, mm-hmm. it's our understanding that the North Atlantic Treaty Organization forces mm-hmm. operating with the blessings of Bill Clinton and supporting Bosnian and, Cro- and Croatian forces were responsible for bringing the Serbs to the bargaining table. So of NATO, Bosnia, Croatian mm-hmm. military intervention did force peace talks. Then in this situation, military force did contribute to lasting peace or at least a, an, an end of violent peace. conflict. Yeah. yeah. And, no, that they did. And, yes. and that is that that's absolutely true. The Bosniaks were about, you know, because you, you have to remember we had a um, blockade on any weapons or arms getting in to Bosnia and the Serbs had, you know, the military might, but the Bosniaks, when President Clinton decided, you know, that work to get NATO to start bombing key points of infrastructure of the Serbs, they were about 10 miles outside of Banja Luka, which was the capital of the Republic of Serbska. And there was a lot of fear that there would be kind of a reverse atrocities. And also too, at that time, there were a lot of pictures that were coming out. I mean, think about what we were seeing, you know, the camps, what had happened in Srebrenica, the massacre in Srebrenica. And, you know, it got to a point where it was too much for the world to see. And there's a lot of guilt around that of folks that were in the government at the time. But it's yeah, being killed. that's right. So, and, you know, like I said, I mean, one of the biggest advocacy groups in Bosnia is the women of Srebrenica. The women in Srebrenica's, their widows, their families, their sons completely wiped out. Um, and this is a really um, important advocacy group that remembers that the world watched while their husbands and sons were massacred. And, and they had they had tried to find, you know, they they had been in a safe, um, you know, Srebrenica had been a safe zone that was protected by the UN. And we watched as it fell and we did nothing. So, yeah. So it, it's to my point here, the NATO troops that were involved in the Bosnian Serbian war, mm-hmm. had they not been involved, the outcome would have been drastically different. Right. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I got there not long after the war ended. And to see the targeted destruction of infrastructure was, in, you know, was incredible. The NATO forces took out bridges, you know, infrastructure, and it would have just continued. So, um, and the same thing happened in Kosovo. I was in Sarajevo during Kosovo conflict. And I remember the first night that NATO was bombing Serbia. It was announced in a restaurant that I was in in Sarajevo and the Bosnians stood up and cheered and clapped. Um, and every night we heard the uh, planes, they would come over at around 11 o'clock and two in the morning and your house would shake. And these were the NATO planes leaving from Italy, going over to bomb Serbia to end the, the war in Kosovo. So yes, absolutely. You know, that's what happened. So looking at Afghanistan for a moment, then uh, it's, it's certainly different from the conflict in Bosnia, but there are similarities. The U.S. military intervention in Afghanistan began in 2003 during the George W. Bush administration and uh, has initiated a war that, that was now to last some 17 years. The Biden administration is completing the U.S. troop withdrawal begun by the previous administration. Taliban is now reported to have taken over at least mm-hmm. nine major mm-hmm. cities. In August 2021, article published in the UN Press explains that the recent Taliban offensive had to, and this is a quote, 
record numbers of civilian casualties and targeted killings. So the vacuum left by the US military pullout has left Afghanistan citizens in extreme danger. Why should the Taliban negotiate a peace when they are achieving their goal of control in Afghanistan? I agree with you more. And I have to tell you, I I worked for the International Rescue Committee. I got there right after the Taliban, right after, well, a couple months after 9-11. And I was working and living in Afghanistan and Pakistan. So this is really personal for me because I worked with so many, um, especially young women. IRC ran an education program. I um, had set up a protection unit um, and we were really looking at protection of of refugees in Pakistan and also uh, those returning to Afghanistan and, and those camps that were set up on the border of Afghanistan and the tribal belt in Pakistan. So this is heartbreaking just beyond anything. You know, we knew we got there shortly after, you know, obviously the, and the Taliban never fully fell, but at least they, they had left major regions like Kabul. And it is completely devastating that we have just pulled out. And that's essentially what we did. We not only just the two things um, that we that the Taliban asked for, their major two asks in the peace talks are removal of all foreign troops. And we gave that to them. The second thing is they wanted prisoners return and we gave that to them. So they have absolutely, they got, we gave them everything before we had signed a peace agreement. And, you know, one of the things that the Alliance for Peacebuilding had advocated for, and I wrote a policy paper on this probably about two years ago, where we talked about the fact that you needed an inclusive peace agreement. Um, we needed to keep um, troops there. And we also needed to make sure that there were benchmarks and that there were monitoring missions set up. Um, we have essentially walked away from the Afghans after, you know, now 20 years, we have walked away of, uh, you know, for what? We have troops still in Iraq. We still have troops in South Korea. We still have troops in Germany. Um, You know, when you're talking about 4,500 or 5,000 troops, clearly that was making a significant difference of holding the Taliban back. Because this is not something that's going to get fixed in, you know, 10 years, even 20 years, this is, a, this was a significant conflict. Now, what have we done? We have walked away. Who is going to suffer the most? Women. Women, you know, and, and the human rights abuses and what is going to happen Afghanistan is beyond tragic. All of the lives lost, both Afghans and Americans and other nations were for what? Um, the amount of resources and funding that we poured into that what for not. And we now know if we had kept these troops there, even at 4,500, 5,000, it could have made a serious difference. Um, So it was really heartbreaking for me when President Biden announced it. There were a lot of people on Twitter, you know, excited, like, yeah, we're ending the forever war. We might be ending our war, but we've just created the conditions for Afghanistan's forever war, coupled with the fact, why did we go in the first place? There was a power vacuum. There was a safe haven for violent extremists and terrorists. You know, we are in a global power competition with China and Russia. We've just walked away from all of that. So this is going to be, in my opinion, this is a disastrous decision. 
and we're going to have to accept the consequences for what we've done. So in terms of a peaceful pathway to ending constant war, then you're saying that one of the key things is to keep troops where they were, as in Korea, and a monitoring network as... No, as a deterrent. And I, I think it's, you know, it's kind of strange. Somebody who is the head of a peacebuilding organization to say, well, we might have to keep some troops. Yes, we yeah. might have to. Yeah. We might, you know, you might you, you might have to have a monitoring mission there. We did that in Bosnia. We had S4. Um, not only did NATO go in to stop the conflict, they then brought in troops, um, the stabilization force that was there for many, many years and were charged with protecting somebody like me. I was I was called a PIFWIC. It's a, I forget what the acronym was, but you know, somebody that was sent there by the government. They were also there to pick up war criminals. So, you know, we have a history of this, and yet it was so important to pull out of Afghanistan. And interesting to note, the very next day after those troops were pulled, uh, were said they were going to be pulled out of Afghanistan, the general in in Iraq made it very clear the U.S. wouldn't be pulling out of Iraq. So I I thought that that was interesting. So Elizabeth, let's change directions here. In a New York Times letter to the editor dated August 8, 2021, Yale professor of law and history Samuel Mullen has this to say, responding to whether the Constitution needs updating. Quote, West Germany's 1949 constitution dedicated the country to peace and made international law an integral part of domestic law. While the United States is a far cry from Nazi Germany, it has nonetheless proved itself to be a threat to world peace. End quote. Mullen goes on from there. But my question for you is about a commitment to peace by the U.S. How would you respond to Samuel Mullen's premise about U.S. being a threat to world peace? So that's a very complex statement, and there's a lot there to unpack. The United States does many things in any one day. Some of those are going to be promote peace in the world. And unfortunately, sometimes what we do actually doesn't promote peace. And we look at it from our own national security lens. So I'll give an example. I talked about this a little earlier, um, Uganda and just wrote a piece for Responsible Statecraft, an article there, where I looked at what we were doing in Uganda. Here you have a government that is perpetuating massive human rights abuses. Their elections were brutal, where the opposition was imprisoned. But yet, because of what they do in the region on counterterrorism and looked at stability in the region, we looked the other way. So there is a hypocrisy in our foreign policy, and people know that. So I call it the we like you countries. If we like you, if you're, you know, supporting our interests of what we see are those, especially sometimes short-term interests, we're willing to look the other way and allow for, you know, human rights abuses or, you know, authoritarian governments. Uh, So that's where I see the U.S. government being incredibly hypocritical and not promoting peace. We know that, you know, that that's just an example. What we, but you can look even more. You can look at climate change. We now know climate change is a, an incredible detriment to peace and, and, and stability globally. Yet we're one of the biggest polluters still. We have not taken that seriously. And we know that the countries that are most vulnerable to climate change 
are sitting at the highest list on conflict-affected and fragile states. And we know that that compounds conflict or, or their vulnerability. So that's an example, I would say. So there's things that we do short-term, you know, that, that in a very specific country or region. And then there's also things globally that, you know, the United States has to do better on. I will also say, you know, we're talking about, and I, I applaud President Biden for saying, we're going to put human rights and democracy back into our foreign policy. That's important, again, but also conflict prevention. But we also have to look at home, at, at our, in our own backyard, and how we rebuild and stabilize our own democracy. Because if we don't do that, we're not going to be a help for any country. You mentioned resolution of global conflict. There's an organization called the Pearson Institute that has mm-hmm. to do with the study and the resolution of global conflict. What's your connection with the Pearson Institute? So the Pearson Institute, the University of Chicago, there's just some incredible folks there that are doing great work. And um, we, I, I akin them to a strategic partner of the Alliance for Peacebuilding. I actually was the keynote speaker at their conference last year. And they're having another conference in October, um, and we work with them, you know, to make sure that, you know, help get them some of the key people working on these issues, on the issues that their conference will be working on. You know, we talk to them about research. They're, um, they have some incredible research coming out of there. So anyway, they're, I, they're very much a strategic partner, and um, we really value their work in this area. Yeah. At the U.S. Agency of International Development in 2004, you helped establish the Office of Conflict Management and Mitigation. Explain for us the purpose of the U.S. Agency for International Development. So USAID is the development arm of the U.S. government, the foreign assistance. And you know, prior again, you know, to the to late 1990s, you know, their work was very focused on education, humanitarian assistance, health. And it was really in the, you know, later 1990s, early 2000s that somebody looked at, in fact, it was Andrew Natsios, who was a political appointee of George W. Bush. Um, He looked at all the countries that USAID was working in and said, holy moly, two thirds of the countries that USAID is operating in or more are sliding into conflict, in conflict, or coming out of conflict. We need to do this differently. We need to do it better. So he was the brainchild behind the Office of Conflict Management and Mitigation. And it was really to take a look at how we use our foreign assistance differently, looking at that conflict prevention lens. And so that, you know, that that's really what I helped do. I helped to set up that office. I worked there for a number of years before I went to Ethiopia. And the goal was, how do we look at our assistance? You know, nobody wants to cut health assistance. Nobody wants to, you know, stop maternal and child health programs. But what can we be doing differently to address conflict prevention and work more towards conflict prevention so that we can prevent the next conflict or manage it or mitigate it. And that that was really my role at USAID, but understanding that USAID is a huge, huge agency that works all over the world and, you know, really focuses in on development assistance. So what differences did they make or do they make in your estimation? 
So I think a tremendous difference. And I also think they do it with, you know, most Americans, when you ask them, how much foreign assistance do we spend overseas? You know, they'll say 25% and that's way too much. Um, when you ask them, what should we be spending on our foreign assistance? They'll say, oh, 10% sounds right. Well, it's important to know that we spend less than 1%. <laughs> considerably less than 1% on foreign assistance. And so this agency does a tremendous amount of work. You know, if you just look at the health field, for example, eradicating diseases, you know, they were the ones, you know, working and a lot of my friends had gone, you know, to work on the Ebola crisis in the DRC. So these are really people, a lot of unsung heroes on the front lines in conflict that are working on addressing the drivers of conflict, the grievances, the humanitarian assistance that is delivered from the American people. So what did you learn from this experience? Hmm. I learned that it is difficult to, you know, the U.S. government is a big bureaucracy and yeah. it's hard to change things, but it's not impossible. And, you know, even within the time that I was there, we were able to change a lot of the thinking and the work and focus in on, let's say, conflict prevention. And it's not impossible. And that there are, there's a lot of things that can be done to prevent conflict, to stop conflict. And the United States, you know, it goes back to the question you asked me about the United States being a threat to peace. There's a lot of work that folks do at the U.S. Agency for International Development that should make Americans proud every day for the work that they're doing to solve problems, to address grievances, prevent viruses um, from taking hold. You know, we know that they're, you know, they don't know any boundaries anymore. This is a, a world that, you know, a virus can be in China and it can be in Seattle in a matter of hours. So there's a lot of incredible work that folks do at the agency and they're incredibly dedicated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, but we a, still need a lot of change. There's still that doesn't mean everything is perfect and working, and there there needs to be a, a change. Sure, sure. Well, as a, a an experienced mediator in encountering violent extremism, international conflict analysis, and peace building in states affected by conflict, I want to ask you this: in in her book, recent book, um, the front the front lines of peace, mm -hmm. uh, Severin Altisere makes the point that. Many peace organizations tend to send their representatives to conflicted areas with their ideas about how to uh, and what needs to be done for peace. Montessori explains that many of these peace organizations rarely consult the locals about how they think their community conflict should be resolved. She believes that grassroots efforts are the answer and outside peace activists should be visible and active as only support networks. How would you respond to Otisere's theory on how peace activists should approach local citizens? So I have a lot of respect for Sabrine and uh, we are we're looking forward to having her speak at our conference this year. So I, I very much share many of her opinions. The one thing we're actually putting out a policy on locally led, and that's really what we call it, locally led, locally owned, you know, civil society. I do push back a bit that there are not, you know, not all organizations consult with local you know, local civil society and, and donors too. Mm -hmm. 
They do a lot. And when I was at USAID um, and going out and doing an assessment, you know, half the people we would talk to would be local organization, local people, because they know the issue in the areas better than clearly anybody who's just, you know, even if somebody has lived there for a number of years. You know, the problem is that, you know, it's true, some organizations don't, but there are a lot of great organizations, Mercy Corps, Safer World, Counterpart, many of the members of the Alliance for Peacebuilding that do an incredible job of working with local organizations to build these programs, to implement these programs. Could we do better? Absolutely. Um, We need to do better. One of the biggest issues, though, really comes out of procurement reform with USAID and other donors, the UK, the UN, the World Bank, is that, remember, this is taxpayers' money, right? And people want to make sure that it goes where it's supposed to go and there are controls. And so the the oversight of these funds is really difficult. And so it's one of the things that I argue for is that there needs to be more flexible funding going to have to be smaller funding that goes out to these organizations and the donor agencies are going to have to accept more risk that, you know, sometimes you might not be able to account for some of the funding, Hmm. but at the same time, you know, there's a lot of money that, you know, let's say gets dumped into a country or not dumped into a country, but gets put into a country and there's an absorption capacity of local organizations, you know, to be able to absorb these funds. So, and, you know, we, you do have to address and make sure issues of corruption are, you know, taken care of as well. There, you know, there has to be controls put into the system. So one of the things that we're looking at right now, and we'll be putting out a policy on this is how do we practically do it? How do we get better at it? How do we ask implementing partners to do better partnerships and work in partnership with those on the ground. At the same time, giving more, you know, making funding processes more adaptive, uh, more flexible, more risk there. So anyway, so that, that's one of the things that we are working on. Yeah, you mentioned absorption capacity. What do you mean by that? There are a lot of people who say we're spending too much money in, in these nations. Sure. So absorption capacity is, you know, you have an organization that's on the ground. It's a local organization. Maybe $50,000 is the lot for them to absorb, to be able to control those funds and where they go and mm-hmm. who's spending them and, you know, the ability to do this work. And so I think that that's, that's what we talk about when you talk about absorption capacity, that, you know, you really need to make sure that the capacity is there, the ability to absorb these funds you know, because people want to make sure that the funds are well spent. And you also don't want to just create a system where you have, you know, organizations, you know, competing for these funds, right? Because at the end of the day, it is money, right? And, you know, that is a lot of money sometimes to absorb or organizations to be able to absorb responsibly. Yeah. So Elizabeth Hume, in March, 2021, you published an article for the online resource Just Security, a forum on law, rights, and U.S. national security. And that article, this quote, the Global Fragility Act could give U.S. assistance and diplomacy a new start for countries in conflict, end quote. You also stated, quote, by the beginning of President Barack Obama's second term, the administration had developed a program called U.S. Strategy, 
for engagement in Central America, a whole of government, integrated effort that could provide a framework for all U.S. government interactions in the region with a focus on ensuring that posterity, security, and governance, end quote. And also, previously, U.S. intervention in the region had focused on a single objective, such as economic growth and crime. Mm-hmm. Would you explain the Global Fragility Act to us? Yeah. So the Global Fragility Act is a really simple concept. And it goes back to what I was saying in terms of, uh, you know, we need to change the way we do business. So, you know, and, and it doesn't matter what country you pick, it all pretty much looks the same. You know, they'll say, okay, we're going to move this country into a middle income. You know, we want to make it safe, blah, 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 blah. right? It's, it's kind of this jargon. And then when you look at it, they're like, okay, well, the majority of funding will be health and education. And, but is that really addressing the drivers of conflict? Is that really addressing the prevention? Is that moving them forward? So what the Global Fragility Act requires is that you take a look at a strategy and you say, okay, let's do the analysis. What is driving this conflict? And what do we need to do differently? You know, again, nobody wants to, you know, slash health programs or child and maternal health programs. But if we're just funding that work and it's out of balance with our conflict prevention and our peace building programs, you know, we can continue doing that, but things aren't going to improve. And we know one conflict can come through there and wipe out any of that development assistance that has been made or those, you know, key indicators in that. So really that's what the Global Fragility Act does. It looks at it differently. It looks at it differently. And that's my next question. How is the Global Fragility Act an improvement over traditional U.S. approach to foreign assistance and diplomacy? So right now our assistance is very siloed. You have health, you have humanitarian assistance, you have, and I'll even say, you know, let's look at our COVID strategy under the previous administration and this administration. There's a pillar that looks at health. There's a pillar that looks at humanitarian assistance. There's a pillar that looks at secondary issues and conflict is somewhere in there with economic assistance. Okay, we know that COVID, the global pandemic, is not, it's more than a health crisis. It's more than a humanitarian crisis. And we need to look at it holistically and say, okay, these are the the three, you know, let's say this is what's driving conflict in this region and or violence. And this is what we need to do. Okay, so how do we program for that? One of the biggest problems that the U.S. government faces in, in terms of assistance, in my opinion, is the fact that it's earmarked. You know, you go into a country and you say, okay, we have $20 million. And then when you get done divvying up the budget, you're like, okay, we have $500,000 that we can do something with because all of that money is earmarked. It's earmarked by Congress to something, let's say a health program or an education program. And while valid and vital, it's not doing anything to address the conflict or very little or address the grievances. So that's what the Global Fragility Act does in a nutshell. It also wants the U.S. government to look at local, locally led more, evidence-based. So we look at a country and we say, okay, this country, you know, is sitting at number 19 on the fragile state index for the fund for peace. Is it moving up? Is it moving down? Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Well, what are we doing? What should we be doing differently? And just because we have a five-year program, do you keep that five-year program? It also makes us look at a strategy in a 10-year cycle. 
not a five-year cycle, not a four-year cycle, not a, it has us look at something in a longer term. And, you know, these things, you know, listeners might be like, well, this only, you know, this is common sense. This makes sense. It's pretty revolutionary in our foreign assistance. And that's why, you know, and then it's really meant to look at, you know, take, let's say five priority countries and regions, and let's see, let's see if we can do it differently. You know, do we need to um, take a look at our procurement and how we procure programs and make it more manageable, make it easier to do? And so anyway, so that, that's what a lot of this is. You know, I, I don't want to say pilot, but in some ways it is. You know, hopefully the U.S. government will be announcing those countries and regions shortly, and we can get on with successfully implementing the Global Fragility Act. The Northern Triangle is recognized as a a collection of three Central American countries. That's uh, Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. And a comment on the Northern Triangle experience, you have this to say, previous U.S. interventions in the region had focused on a single objective such as economic growth or crime reduction. And then you say, didn't you add this, uh, Central America strategy began to show results within two and a half years. Security conditions began to improve, economic growth remained steady, and attorneys general in the region took on corrupt cases that implicated high-level government officials. Does this Northern Triangle experiment include attention to grassroots activism by citizens, as we were talking about earlier? Yes, it does. And that's one of the things that came out of the new strategy. So essentially, really quickly, what happened is towards the end of the Obama administration, they put this strategy in. It was the last two years of the administration. It was starting to show some really good results. Um, And in areas where these programs were working, you saw migration um, go down significantly. Under the Trump administration, unfortunately, he cut assistance dramatically. And that, that was really my point of that article is that it's going to have the opposite effect of if you want to stop people from coming to the United States, address the conflict and violence drivers at the root of the problem. President Biden has essentially reinst, um, you know, put that uh, strategy back in place, improved it, and they just put out a strategy. We'll just be putting out a policy talking about it. But yes, we very much advocate for local, locally led organizations there to be at the forefront of this new strategy. So we talk, uh, yeah, we talk a lot uh, with nonprofit organizations, Mm -hmm. uh, peace building, are nonprofit peace building organizations involved in the experiment? Yes, and many of our members are working there. Um, And we just met with probably 20 of them to help pull together our response to the strategy and a policy. So yeah, I mean, there's there's many organizations that are working there. Um, one of our members, Dexas, Mercy Corps, has been working on land conflict there. So yes, there's there's a lot of work that is going on there, and these renew this renewed strategy and the renew you know more resources going in, you know, and, and I think the uh, President Biden is compl- you know 100 right, and we applaud this strategy get to the root of the violence of the conflict. Um, And that's what this strategy does. Absolutely. Elizabeth, we are unfortunately coming to the end of our program time. In uh, our remaining moments, would you have some uh, last thoughts to share with our listeners? 
So yes, yeah, so, so thank you so much. This has been, uh, I think, a phenomenal conversation and you asked me a lot of questions that people haven't asked me before. So I, I very much appreciate it. And I just really wanna say, you know, the world does, we have a violent conflict problem and it's increasing. And it is the root of many of our problems, uh, whether it be humanitarian needs and migration needs. And so we need to start, if, if, if we know violent conflict is a problem, we need to significantly invest in it and change the way, and in a lot of ways, like through the Global Fragility Act of how we're working on it um, and address upstream conflict prevention. And that is a bipartisan issue. And we have champions on both sides of the aisle in Congress that champion that. Um, so um, I, I really urge people to understand that issue, understand um, the nexus between COVID and conflict, for example. Um, we know that in countries where there was greater social cohesion uh, prior to the vaccine, those countries did better. Why the United States did so bad prior to the vaccine, well, we're still not doing well, but because of our declining social cohesion in our country, which is a conflict driver. So, you know, we need to understand that these conflict drivers and grievances impact, you know, some of the most violent conflicts that are out there, but are also, you know, impacting us here at home in our own backyard and our own democracy. And we need to look at those, fund those, you know, the, the President Biden just announced a democracy summit that will be held um, in early December. One of the things that we're saying is, okay, but what's our democracy strategy here in the United States? What are we gonna be doing to rebuild our own democracy so that we don't continue to slip into violence? And you know, we're seeing this incredible rise of violent extremism in the United States. So you know, don't just think conflict happens over there, it happens in your own backyard and think about how you can get involved in working here at home or overseas. Absolutely, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, we are out of time. And, and we know you would like to thank Elizabeth Holm for her appearance here today on Solutions to Violence. You can listen to Solutions to Violence on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. Today's program will be repeated August 17th and 18th. The Solutions to Violence program featuring Elizabeth Hume will be placed in our archives August 18th, 2021. To listen via our archives, visit us at forwardradio.org. Scroll down to Program Archives and then scroll down to Solutions to Violence program that features Elizabeth Hume. If you'd like to share your thoughts about our discussion with Elizabeth Hume, you can reach us at the following email, solutions to violence 18 at gmail.com. Thank you for joining our search for Solutions to Violence. I'm Jamie McMillan here with Jim Johnson as your host. Our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. Until next time, please keep the peace in your own personal way and help others do the same. Thank you for listening.